I'd start this podcast by reading out my funny quip regarding the State of the Union, but Nancy Pelosi tore it up. This is the Loyrad Media Podcast. Yes, we're back for the third podcast in as many days. And before we get into everything regarding the State of the Union, we're going to touch on the results of the Iowa caucus which are still yet to fully come in more than 24 hours. I think we're sitting now at about 30 hours since voting took place. As when I'm recording this, only 71% of the counties are reporting. This is an absolute farce. And we could sit back and wonder if the current leader, Pete Buttigieg, will be hurt by this. A win here would have been big to really kickstart a campaign and really move him from in fourth place behind Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden and really push him in the, uh, the thoughts and minds of, of the voter. But now it's sort of in the noise of the State of the Union and that's a real shame. So as of... As of right now, 24 delegates have been dished out and Pete Buttigieg has 10 as well as Bernie Sanders, who also has 10, despite uh, 26.8% of the vote to 25.2. They carry the same number of delegates. And with 18.4% of the vote, Elizabeth Warren has picked up four delegates. There are about 20 delegates also to be sort of uh, handed out once the voting has actually been counted and tabulated, but, I mean, we just might sit and wait, and quite frankly, it doesn't really matter anymore. There's four different uh, votes this month. The first one's done, and really now it moves to New Hampshire next week, and, you know, bad luck. I think Nevada's the week after, and I think it's South Carolina before Super Tuesday hits. And the important thing to note that although... Only like 41 delegates, I think, are up for grabs in this first vote. It does carry a lot of sway. It can, it can turn things. But now that that's sort of gone away, it's largely an irrelevant state. New Hampshire becomes quite important next week. They reckon that's going to be pretty big um, for Bernie Sanders. And Nevada becomes more important for somebody like a Joe Biden who could really sweep that state, they believe. So, the important thing to remember, though, 40 delegates are being handed out at this first vote. It's exciting because it's the first vote, but there are around 4,000 delegates that are going to be distributed throughout this Democratic primary election race. And you need, I think it's 1,991 to win. So, the 10 that Pete Buttigieg has really is largely irrelevant at this point until Super Tuesday, where I think roughly 1,400 of the 4,000 delegates get handed out on that day. I think 12 different states vote, including uh, California and Texas. So it's a, it's, a big, it's a big voting day. And that's when you start seeing people fall out of the race. So until then, we've just got to sit and wait and... There will be another debate on Friday, 
So I think uh, Australia time, the podcast will go up on Saturday regarding that. And the big notable thing is Bloomberg is in, Deval Patrick is in, and Tulsi Gabbard is out in relation to that debate, which I'm not pleased with. But a lot of uh, swami business has been happening with the DNC and elections of late, so I guess we can't be all that surprised. But today was the State of the Union, and that is the big story. Donald Trump came up and gave, I think, a very measured speech. I think it was a very likable speech. He really has gotten better with every year that has passed. Last year was a lot more fiery because I think the Democrats as a whole were more willing to really sort of let him have it. Whereas this year, because of the impeachment, I think it was very deliberate that they were not going to stand up and applaud unless they felt they absolutely had to. And that's why there was a lot of silence on one half of the floor and the other half was probably getting you know, sore knees from having to stand up and sit down throughout the about an hour 15 speech that Donald Trump gave. I'm going to run through some notes and and discuss a few of the things. Some of them might just, here's a point, he talked about this, but I might spend a bit more time on others. But he started, and the, the most important thing to remember is a State of the Union speech is really talking about the successes. And it might be easy to go after the Democrats and say, God, they'll try to impeach me. Look at look at all the, the great things I've done and really go to attack the, the other side. But that's really not how it should be done. And knowing that more people are going to be watching this, especially we're now nine months out of an election, to just talk about the successes, basically make the case, look at how well I've done in three years Give me five more at this point. And in nine months, give me four more years. So he started talking about the unemployment rate, which is sort of the envy of the world right now in with the US unemployment rate. I studied economics and we were taught in you know the last year of, of uh, economics in our university degree that full em- it, it's full employment isn't 0% unemployment because you've always got to accept that there are going to be some people that are just unable to find work. So it's basically determined that 5% unemployment is full employment. And that's why in Australia right now, I think we have 5.1% or 5.2% unemployment and it's considered, wow, how great is Australia's economy doing? In the US right now, they have 3.6% unemployment. It is at an all-time low. And not only is it an all-time low for the economy across the board, it's an all-time low for African-American unemployment, Hispanic unemployment, I think it was um, women unemployment. And he ran through all of these great figures. And last year, the Democrats did stand and applaud for things like that. There was a a memorable moment when AOC was high-fiving that the majority of jobs were filled by women. I think it was about 70%. And that happened again this year. But this year, they were all, all seated, which I found, I found odd. One of the big successes of the Trump campaign, which oh, the Trump presidency, sorry, that hasn't really been discussed largely 
in, in the media is the amount of people on welfare as a result of the unemployment rate going down. They've gone down as well. And the number of people on food stamps has gone down by about 10 million people than it had just over three years ago under the Obama era. And he sort of labeled it by the end by calling it a blue collar boom, really emphasizing getting manufacturing jobs back into the country. He discussed trade deals, the NAFTA, the, the NAFTA deal, the China trade deal that was done last week, and there was a US-Mexico-Canada deal done as well, I think somewhat recently. And then he sort of moved to something that, that sort of took up about the first 20 minutes. And I think a lot of people by that point, I reckon, would have sort of tuned out. They would have gone, oh, things are doing pretty okay. You know, consumer confidence is at an all-time high and trust in in police is higher than it was, I think, for the century, maybe earlier in, um, in the century, maybe 2001, 2002, it was higher. But then he brought out Juan Guaido, who is basically the opposition to Maduro in Venezuela. And this was, I think, a brilliant tactical move because everybody in politics, absolutely despises what is going on in Venezuela at the moment. But to bring out sort of the the democracy opposition to the socialism that's currently going through in Venezuela, everybody stands up and applauds. And then Donald Trump has no choice, really. It, and it makes the Democrats look weak for them to not stand up and applaud when he says... Socialism destroys nations, but freedom unites the soul. Last year, he said socialism will have no place in America. And even some Democrats were standing up and applauding. But this year, there was none of that. He discussed military spending and then went on to discuss Space Force. He then brought out, uh, you know... There's a a galley up at the top where Donald Trump would, and I think he did this really well, and it works quite well for the cameras, for everyone watching at home. He would bring out a person, explain their story and, and how they've overcome, and everybody would stand up and applaud like, well done you. And then he would say, now we're actually going to do, here's a policy that will help people like this person that you're seeing right now. And it becomes then, it gives you that human element that, oh, it's going to help people like this. And he started with a 13-year-old uh, who wanted to, who was wanting to get into Space Force. And everyone's like, okay, you know, it's a kid, he's excited, yada, yada, yada. And it turns out his great-grandfather was General McGee. And he was in attendance at age 100. He's one of the most decorated army Fighter pilots, he served for over 30 years in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, and basically was a part of 409 combat missions. So it that was a, a nice moment for sort of everyone to just sort of take stock before moving on. Another person was brought up to illustrate the policy that they want to bring forward with school choice, and about a million kids that they want to have that 
put into so they don't have to go to a government school if they don't want to. Right now, that is the the case. They discussed healthcare and talked about how they're now including pre-existing conditions with their healthcare. They talked about boosting Medicare and Social Security and went on to say, we will not let socialism destroy American healthcare. Currently, 180 million Americans are on healthcare and the current Bernie Sanders plan and Elizabeth Warren plan would actually result in all of them losing their health care before they can get it back, which does freak out a lot of people. He did stress also that for the first time in 51 years, prescription drugs on average went down, the prices of them, which I think is is something that's quite notable, a little tick that you can put next to the Trump presidency as well. He discussed the wall and talked about how by the end of the year he hopes to have about 500 miles of the wall built. He then discussed working on the opioid crisis. Everybody sort of stood up and, and applauded. And one of the very big successes, and this is one of the huge successes you will, will not hear from the, the media at large, the last two or three years... I think it's three years now, the life expectancy in America has gone down. And it's largely to the opioid crisis and the suicide rates in young men. They've been going up at such an alarming rate that the life expectancy is going down. For the first time in just over those three years now, the life expectancy has ticked back up. And it's due to the work on this opioid crisis where in some places now uh, deaths are down as many as 20-25% year on year. Rush Limbaugh, who is a radio sort of legend, I guess. I, I don't, being in a different country, haven't really listened to him, though I am aware of who he is, so that does carry some weight into how successful he's been. On Friday... Friday, maybe Monday, revealed that he has stage four lung cancer. And usually when that happens, it's very likely that he will not be with us for much longer. He's sort of been the number one conservative radio guy for some time now. And he was in shock and really was in tears because Donald Trump awarded him the highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of freedom. He then discussed, uh, he brought out a woman with a two-year-old child, uh, yeah, two-year-old child named Ellie, and discussed that the Kansas City Hospital had delivered her 21 weeks and six days, so quite prematurely. At the time was the earliest date that a child had survived, as you know, a full term is 40 weeks and he wants to donate 50, oh, donate, give $50 million to the hospital to help working on that, on that uh, prenatal sort of care and helping reduce or increase the survival rate, sorry, of babies born prematurely and, then went on to tie that in with 
wanting to ban late-term abortions. Now, obviously, that is a divisive issue, but for his base, I think that is quite a successful one. But it is noted that he did bring that up at last year's State of the Union, so to bring it up again, that is something that hasn't been achieved in the last year. Donald Trump is known for not being uh, pro the environment, sort of having that view out there. He announced that the government is joining the One Trillion Trees Initiative. I don't know what portion of the trillion trees that the US will be planting, but joining that initiative is, it is good to see. And the entire room stood up to applaud when he stated that they will be rebuilding US infrastructure focusing on roads, bridges, and tunnels, and wanting to get high-speed internet to rural areas. And that, that got a big applause as well. He then discussed ICE and how they've had 120,000 arrests last year of violent criminals who were here illegally, and discussed sanctuary cities and how, basically, these are Democrat-run cities largely, really taking a shot at the other side there but sort of saying, you know, these people are getting arrested in some of these cities and are basically, in comparison, getting away with it and staying in the country when they shouldn't. He wanted to focus on human trafficking. I don't think anyone's really going to say how dare he want to focus on that. And really discussed that at the southern border, there was a, a policy that was sort of coined as catch and release, where basically under the Obama era, and it might have been the Bush era as well, but I think it was largely, uh, let's say, popularized. You know what I mean when I say that. Under the Obama era, where basically if somebody came across the border illegally and they got arrested, they were basically told, you have to come back here 30 days from now for a trial, and we'll decide if you're allowed to enter the country or not. Anyway, um go like you've just got to be back here in 30 days and the amount of like the percentage rate of people that actually came back was so small so it was basically a way of saying yeah we arrested them but oh you know what what could we do uh he discussed space force funding and everyone was you know mixed on that the the republicans stand up and applaud the democrats stay seated he discussed a 100 percent destruction of ISIS land and discuss the killing of al-Baghdadi, which was a huge win for the Trump presidency in the last year, and discussed uh, a woman who was basically an American woman who was held captive for about 500 days by al-Baghdadi and ultimately murdered. And they called the mission, the army sergeant, the leader, the captain, Uh, called the mission 814, and 814, August 14th, was that girl Kayla's birthday. He uh, discussed his sort of planned treaty for Palestine and Israel, the two-state solution that he has put forth. He then discussed uh, Soleimani and the, the, the killing of Soleimani last year, another big win for Trump. It's important also to know that Israel has uh, commended Trump in the last few weeks as well, largely due to the Jerusalem embassy move. He sort of ended with reuniting a wife with her husband who was recently deployed, which was a nice thing to see, and sort of 
basically ended talking, just talking about, you know, the history of America is great. The modern America is great, but the best is yet to come, which is, you know, standard fare for ending a speech of this nature. There were three notable things that I think the media will touch on that really have nothing to do with the speech. There is a specific way that the leader of the House is meant to sort of introduce the president when they enter. And it's sort of like, you know, your excellency, the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, Donald Trump. But instead, Nancy Pelosi just said, the president of the United States, Donald Trump. So there are a lot of people online discussing that that really wasn't wasn't a, a good look for her. Also, when um, Donald Trump came through, he shook the hands of a lot of people. It's a you know, it's a very, it's all for show, really. But he refused to shake the hand of Nancy Pelosi. So again, the the Democrats start shaking their fists over that. But towards the end, and I you know, I'm, I'm willing to call that a draw, the refusal and a handshake, and really at, on the other side, really both refusing to show respect to the other side in that moment. But throughout the speech, Nancy Pelosi was pulling a lot of faces, was talking through the speech, which was just a little disrespectful. Like, it's not a, you know, it's, it's not like how dare she type problem. But once the speech had finally come to a close, she receives the speech ahead of time, you know, so she can read over it and also basically look and decide when she wants to, she, she directs when the Democrats can stand up and, and applaud. She stood up and very overtly started tearing up the script that had just been read out. And I'm sure that people on her side of the aisle love that. The people that are going to be voting Democrat come November loved seeing that. Found it absolutely hilarious. There's a part of me that saw that and just saw it as something just completely childish. And I don't think it's a good look because ultimately Trump came across as the person on the high ground. And one of the notable things in the 2016 election was what when Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. And really, we've seen the last three years of both sides going low. But today, Trump, in a, I guess, a 2-1 decision, went high and Nancy Pelosi went low, which was not a shock to see, but I think it was just a very childish way for her to end this spe- end this speech, and I think we're going to see article after article. I would not be surprised of people going, "Oh, her tearing up the speech! What an act of defiance, or the strength, or it shows how in charge she was the whole time." And I can already see on ABC's website now the headline: Donald Trump snubs Nancy Pelosi's handshake. But did she get the last laugh? Well, no, she didn't because she acted like a child. And I, it's not a good look. And she should be better. She should be better. 
That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Ultimately, I think this is another win for Trump, especially when you sort of snowball it with what happened in Iowa yesterday. He's having a good week, and if the Democratic debate on Friday really turns out to be another fizzler like the last three or four, I think it's really looking more and more positive for Donald Trump. You know, he held himself back, let's say 25%, but that's enough because the expectation of him is lower than a standard politician in that respect. So I think today's State of the Union was a huge win for him to really get out a lot of the successes. A lot more people watch the State of the Union. It's pretty much on every news network in America. So more people are going to watch it, which means more people are going to hear Donald Trump talk for 75 minutes rather than here's a little clip of something that he said in a paragraph or you know something that all the news outlets are guilty of, regardless of which side they're reporting on. So I think this is a big win for the Trump presidency leading into an election year. And, we'll, I mean, we've just got to wait and see how things turn up. Be sure to subscribe and hit the notification bell if you're listening on YouTube. You can subscribe and follow us on all good podcast services. I know we're on Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify. I know there's some other ones out there. If you use them, if they don't have us, then you've got to delete the app. It's clearly, clearly not a good podcast service. You can like us on Facebook. But, of course, the best place to go is loyrad.com.au. That's where every episode under the Loyrad Media tree is hanging out. I want to thank you very much for getting to this point. My name's Jack Darrell. Have yourselves a fantastic day. We'll see you later.